0: This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. We're doing an extra one this week because Publius is jetting around the world for his business and has left me happily ensconced here in Milan, having had my espresso, of which more later. And I thought that I'd check in on Ukraine as it's been a while. And I wanted to make the counterintuitive case for a Russian victory in the Donbass. The commentariat has gone from giving the Ukrainians no chance of winning to giving the Ukrainians every chance of winning. And that gives you an idea of how bad they are at prognostication. And we, in the interests of fairness, predicted a Ukrainian victory in the first phase of the war and got that right. Uh, we thought the Russian battle plan was too complicated. We thought Ukraine was indeed a nation. And we thought the West would get its act together. And on all fronts, we were proven correct. But now things are swinging too far the other way. And while we think... The most likely outcome of the second round of fighting, the second phase in the Donbass of fighting, will be stalemate. This podcast is a necessary corrective for the idea that the Russians have no chance of winning, the war is over, and now the Ukrainians will easily crush the Russian army. The very people who told you the Russians were invincible are now telling you they're hopeless. And as ever in political risk, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. We think, and I want to make this absolutely clear, that stalemate is still the most likely outcome of this second phase of fighting in the Donbass, that neither side gain a victory, that that the Russians are unable to fully exploit a land bridge to the south. And of course, that is their plan. The plan is that they want to link up Rostov-on-Don, which is part of Russia proper, with the two Russian-speaking separatist provinces in the east of the country, the Donbass, Luhansk and Donetsk. They control almost all of Luhansk already since 2014 and then they want to add Donetsk in where they have made some inroads and to link this up via a land bridge along the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov through Mariupol and connecting this to Crimea in the south which they annexed in 2014. And if you look at this on the map this makes perfect sense. They would have contiguity, they would have a contiguous Russian-dominated landmass from Crimea all the way back to Rostov. They would totally seal off Ukraine from all of the Sea of Azov and from much of the Black Sea, and this would cripple Ukraine and leave Russia with vital port material area on both these seas and would, would really cripple the Ukrainians and certainly is something Putin could count as a win. We think that even this, a secondary lesser phase than taking the whole of the country in two weeks, which was their original idea, We think that even this they will fail at, but it is possible they succeed. The greatest percentage and the way we would lay odds would be to say stalemate is the most likely outcome, but then secondarily, a Russian victory in the Donbass is the next likely outcome, with only lastly, the Ukrainians totally throwing off the Russians, evicting them from the Donbass and going back to the original pre-2014 borders. Ukraine simply doesn't have the weaponry from the West to do this. So basically the only two outcomes that we really need to worry ourselves with between now and the end of the year, and certainly fighting will continue that long, we got that right as well, unlike our critics. Beware of people who say the war will be over in three minutes. It never is. War is incredibly complicated. And when you draw the sword, as we've said, according to Bismarck, you roll the dice and unintended consequences begin to happen immediately as you lose control over that initial declaration of war. And that's what's happened here. But for all that, stalemate is the most likely outcome, but we wanted to make the case, which is a minority case, but still, I'd say 35, 40% possibility of a Russian victory in the Donbass. And what would that look like? Why can we make that argument? Well, first of all, Putin has begun to rearrange his forces. As we know, they've moved away from Kiev and he has spent the last few weeks weeks repositioning them. Gone is the overly complicated three-pronged assault, which was part of the Russian problem. In the first place, they had an incredibly labyrinthine game plan, one they hadn't really operated since Berlin in 1945. And it showed they were absolutely no good at it. And very quickly, things devolved into a three-pronged war where the Russians were decisively checked around Kiev, made steady but slow progress around the Donbass, and did very well in the south. Three very separate outcomes that the unity of the plan broke down almost immediately. Well, that's gone now. The Russians have only a one-pronged assault from Rostov straight ahead through the Donbass to finish the land bridge. It's much easier to supply because Rostov Rostov is a major city in Russia proper, uh, so that isn't difficult, and the complications are gone. It's a simple, straightforward assault, something that under Zhukov the Russians were very good at and understand. So that's the first thing in their favor. They've uncomplicated the plan, and logistics-wise, which has always been traditionally the bugbear of the Russian army, they're not very good at logistics, now the logistics are quite simple, so they've solved this basic problem. In reconfiguring troops, there are estimates that at present, according to the British military, the MOD and the Pentagon, that Russia outnumbers Ukrainian forces by around three to one, which is the minimum they need to do offensive operations. Generally, the rule of thumb is three to four to one to make it work over entrenched defense positions. And Ukraine does have entrenched positions that have been there since the 2014 war. Think World War I. There are trenches there and they will have to be overcome. And for that kind of assault, the Russians need an advantage of three or four to one, and they're just to the edges of having that. The Russian plan, again, is simple on a map. And if you have a look, please do look at Ukraine on a map. What they want to do is encircle and destroy a significant portion of the Ukrainian army. Um, and they have learned, indeed, from this first phase. Um, and that, that is to their advantage, that they want to press south from Kharkov in the, in the north, And they want to press north from Luhansk in the south. And in a pincer movement, again, this is good World War II tactics. They want to surround the part of the Ukrainian army defending the Donbass. And by the way, this is the good part of the Ukrainian army. Battle tested, much more hardened than the people around Kiev. So this is the cream of the crop. And so to encircle, surround, and destroy this group would be a decisive victory for the Russians. And that's what certainly they're aiming at. But if for these logistical reasons and in terms of a much simpler plan, this is an advantage of Russia. The second advantage is just the terrain. The Donbass is flat with, uh, with firm terrain. Uh, this offers Russian tanks and artillery a huge advantage over the forests that were around Kiev. And again, in the marsh and the mud and the muck of winter ending in Kiev, the Russian tanks bogged down and we could see this. This is not going to be the situation in the Donbass, which has flat, firm terrain, ideal for tank warfare. And if the Russians can break out from these entrenched Ukrainian positions, a la World War I, they will have room to run with a football. And the tanks can make quick progress if they can break through the initial Ukrainian fortifications. And so that's the second reason to think that the Russians could do better. The third reason is they finally appointed a commander. They had divided, despite having a unitary plan for the first phase of the war, they had a divided command, which is an idiotic failure of Putin. Now they've gone back and appointed an experienced commander, General Alexander Dvornikov, who made his name in Syria, flattening Aleppo, which is certainly a war crime. And Dvornikov is the king of winning ugly. And this would be the third point to make. This is winning ugly, that he saved the blood stained Assad in Syria by just flattening Aleppo not caring how many civilians he killed going in there and tearing the place down and eradicating the people in his way think Grozny in the second Chechen war when Putin came to power you flatten or Mariupol now you flatten everything in sight it takes a long time you use your artillery you surround the cities you train not to get involved in urban warfare and already we can see Dvornikovs influence and in that the Russians are not going to go into the steelworks in Mariupol, where, which is the last remnant of the Ukrainian brave resistance there, because they would lose so many troops. If you're fighting in an urban setting, the rule of thumb is that you need an advantage of anywhere up to six to one. And the Russians don't have those kind of numbers. And also, they don't want to politically sustain those kind of casualties. So instead, they're going to sit outside and just pound the place into the ground, surround it, as Putin said yesterday of Mariupol, blockade it so not even a fly can get out. Starve the city out in a medieval, brutal way. And this is what Dvornikov did in Aleppo. Starve them out, surround it, and pound it with your artillery and air if you can, but artillery certainly, which the Russians are good at and have a lot of, and surround it and then just wait for you know, time to take its course and for an emaciated enemies to finally come out. It's winning the ugliest way possible. It's almost futile in the way that it works, but it worked under Dvornikov in Syria and that Putin has brought him back to have unitary command of the Donbas assault shows exactly that this is how the Russians are gonna behave. This is a general who had made his name at at Aleppo and winning in the ugliest way possible, committing what we would call in the West, certainly war crimes by starving out civilians, by making war on civilians and pounding them with artillery, but it's frighteningly effective. And so look for Dvornikov to do much of the same, but now the Russians have a unitary command. So they've they've addressed the numbers, they're ahead by three to one. They have easy routes of supply and logistics instead of their overly complicated plan. They have a plan that makes geographical and strategic sense. Um, They have flat terrain that if they can break out, suits them. They have tanks, which is, along with artillery, a trademark of the Russian army, the thing they're good at. They don't have to deal with logistics, which is a the thing they're traditionally bad at. And in Dvornikov, they finally have a unitary commander who is very good at this kind of warfare, winning in the ugliest way possible. What Dvornikov is going to try to do, again, is orchestrate a pincer movement with Russian forces pushing south from Kharkiv, which is the second city of Ukraine, and north from Luhansk, and then forcing the Ukrainians, as happened earlier with the Germans in World War II, to either retreat or be surrounded and have to fight their way out, both of which are very negative options. Uh, To do this, he's decided Putin and Dvornikov to merely seal, seal off Mariupol blockade the steelworks where the remnant of the Ukrainian several thousand hardened Ukrainian troops are, and free up five or 6,000 Russian soldiers to participate in this pincer movement. So he's acting by sealing them off as though he's won and then try to starve out the remaining Ukrainians there. But more importantly for Dvorakrov is to free up these Russian soldiers to engage in this pincer movement and try to break out from the 2014 lines in Luhansk. And again, you see in Kharkiv, you see, you, you see the biggest bombardment um, ever around the city as part of the idea that this plan is now in, in, in motion. Consolidating, controlling this land bridge would indeed cut off both the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea up until around Odessa. I don't think the Russians have the wherewithal to take Odessa, but up to Crimea, certainly they would to cut Ukraine off and partially landlock it and secure this land bridge of Russian domination from Crimea back through the Sea of Azov, Mariupol, to uh, the Donbass, and back to Rostov. And this is definitely what they're trying to do. So this is a plan that certainly could work. I still think they're going to have tremendous difficulty escaping from the trenches that are there to break out, if they break out, the chance for victory goes up from about 35% to somewhere around 65%. It becomes a likelihood. The key is the trench warfare, and can the Ukrainians hold the line they presently have? They've been building trenches there for literally eight years. If they they lose this position, the advantage goes to the Russians. If they keep the position, the initiative remains with the Ukrainians. So this is pretty easy to follow. But saying that the Russians still have a strategic chance at victory in the Donbass is not to point out that geopolitically, the Russians are already defeated. And this is my last and most hopeful point that even if this were to happen, there have been a number of seismic changes geopolitically which harm Russia fundamentally. The first is that the Russians have almost single handedly revived NATO. Gone was last year when President Macron said NATO was brain dead, or where Americans Uh, much like McKinsey looking for reasons to have consulting, uh, where the Americans were looking for reasons for NATO existing. Everyone now accepts the original reason for NATO existing. Lord Ismay's comment that the poor purpose of NATO is to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down um, still has validity. It's to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans integrated in the Western command. Everyone now accepts that and that NATO is important. So important is NATO that Finland and Sweden, which I can speak personally, I've been to Sweden many times, begging them to join the alliance. They have a wonderful Navy, great intelligence resources, and a significant air power, and they've been dealing with the Russians since charles the twelfth we'd love them to come into nato they actually add security value to the alliance rather than taking value they add value suddenly sweden and finland and finland has a conscript army where they can deploy two hundred fifty thousand trained soldiers that are just part of their populace. They have an 800 mile border with the Russians that so the Russians are gonna to have to put troops on. Both these countries are huge strategic advantages to NATO. Both are desperate to join because their people after being in favor of neutralism in the case of Sweden for centuries, to see what that leads to with Putin. Everyone now wants a NATO commitment. Life insurance and insurance in general may be boring, which is what NATO has provided. Madeleine Albright never seemed to understand this. But what it really is, is very important when you have a flood next door. And now with the, there's flooding, everybody wants NATO. And so Putin has revitalized NATO, which should have been the last geostrategic thing he wanted to do. And secondly, Putin has revived the EU and Germany. Suddenly, for the first time in memory, the EU is going to have a strategic component, something they've been missing since the 1950s and the failure of the European defense community then. Now we're going to have already a capable France, and Sweden has promised to hit the 2% number, as has Poland, which is a a great power within Europe, and now critically, as has Germany, the economic powerhouse of Europe that's been flirting with neutralism under the brain-dead Merkel administration, a mercantilist isolationist neutralism, where they were in the energy pocket of the Russians and oblivious to this. They were become, about to become more so with the signing out of Nord Stream 2. Now all of that's done. The Germans are committed to spending 2% and an extra 100 billion euro to catch up for their vast weapons deficiencies. And Europe, with Germany and France at the center, will finally have a strategic component. The rearming of Germany from a Russian historical point of view is about the last thing the Kremlin wanted, and they've made that happen. So Putin has revived NATO. He's woken up Germany and revived the EU. The EU third is now firmly in the American camp. Gone are the chaos of multiple voices. Gone is Germany flirting with a neutralist position as it gets energy from Russia, its drug dealer, and has China as its primary trading partner. Now with Germany firmly Atlanticist, with the Draghi regime in Italy firmly Atlanticist, with even French Gaulism tending toward Atlanticism, you have Europe and the EU firmly back in the League of Democratic US camp. And this is another thing Putin didn't want. He liked that they were flirting with neutralism. And that's the third thing that's gone. And then fourth, the Russians have had to move into the Chinese camp, but not as an equal, as Robin to China's Batman, as very much the junior partner, vengeful, humiliated, economically a mendicant, a pariah state. Russia's had to go cap in hand to the Chinese to play Robin to China's Batman. and That's the only way that alliance would work with Russia as a junior partner. But gone is the great Russian nationalist posturing of Putin in the face of Peter the Great, and now comes subordinate status at the global sphere to China. So the trade of the EU heading toward America and Russia heading toward China is certainly a win for the United States and a trade we'd make every single day. And that's the fourth geostrategic problem that's come about as a result of the war. And then lastly, the Europeans have put a time clock on accepting Russian hydrocarbons. The Germans have talked about with the end of the year doing away with Russian oil. The UK and the US have already said we will not have Russian oil. Oil is the big money maker for the Russians. And for the West to dramatically and quickly, very quickly turn away from oil, natural gas will take longer, about two to three years, but that's not an infinite amount of time. For this to happen, Leaves the Russians desperate to have to find new suppliers, and doubtless they will, but at bargain basement prices. Look for new deals to be done with China, but very much on China's economic terms. Look for bargain basement deals with energy-starved India, but on New Delhi's terms. So yes, they'll still sell oil, but they will have to radically shift. The means of production from Europe to the rest of the world, and they're going to do so at a huge economic loss that doesn't suit them at all, but befits their increasingly secondary declining status as a great power. So all five of these things have happened. They've revived NATO. The Russians unwittingly have revived the EU and Germany. The EU is firmly in the U.S. camp. Russia is now Robin to China's Batman, and the days of, of Russia dominating Europe through energy policy are quickly coming to an end. So even if the Russians do win a strategic victory in the Donbass, geostrategically, at the highest level, they've already lost. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed today's Around the World in 20 Minutes. That was a fun one to get off. The case for Russian victory in the Donbass and the geostrategic loss that they've already sustained. Um, if you enjoy this, please do subscribe. So many of you have, and we're gratified that this has happened please do subscribe. And those of you who've subscribed, please do give. For the price of the espresso, half an espresso that I'm about to have a month. If you think we're worth half an espresso uh, for our Monday vlogs about Ukraine, Tuesday culture section, we're about to start Sergio Leone and the Spaghetti Westerns. Wednesday's Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, where we look at the beguiling new era we find ourselves in. Thursday's J.L. Writer in the Society column, and Friday's Publius in the Politics column. We are a little local newspaper in the, to the world, and if you think this cutting-edge, sub-stack, content-rich journalism that we provide directly to our readership without any editorial nonsense in between, if you think this is worth it, for half the price of an esp- espresso a month, $70 a year, please do give, and we promise to continue doing exactly what we're doing. Hope you enjoy this and have a great weekend.